So he later described it as an elephant squid, claiming the long neck. That's gross. Yes, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Nessie is gorgeous. There's no way it's an elephant squid. Hello and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. Some of you may also know me as Death or the Plague. Are you the dancing kind or just the black kind? Uh, <laughs> not going to answer that one. <laughs> we'll go with bubonic. Yeah, there we go. All right. Anyways, uh, this is a podcast where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. A very long time ago. Uh, mine's extremely long ago. How how far back are we going? Uh, we're taking a trip all the way back to uh, 79. Oh, okay. Double digits. Nice. <laughs> Do we have anything to say from uh, last week? Um, Not that I can think of currently. All right, so let me weave you a tale with my new lower voice from <laughs> being sick. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you seem even worse now than you were last night, which yeah. is saying something. <laughs> I feel better. Kind of, maybe. I don't know. You sound and look worse. Yeah. I've just gotten used to the bad feeling today. (laughs) Apparently. Okay. So, despite me just saying we're going to 79, I'm going to start my tale in the year 62. I have been lied to. Yes. (laughs) For the time being. All right. So, close your eyes and imagine with me that you have just gotten off a boat and entered the walled Roman city of Colonia Cornelia Veneria Pomperinorum. Just outside the marina is a bathhouse that you take to get to the smell to get the smell of the sea and sweat off of you. As you come out of the bathhouse refreshed, you enter the city through large gates and are immediately greeted by the beautiful temple ugh, beautiful temples of Venus, Apollo, and Jupiter. I have an interjection. Yes. I do not think the Greek bathhouses were actually that uh, refreshing. They likely were not. (laughs) I'm pretty sure they were pretty gross. (laughs) Yeah. There's another gross thing that will gloss over as we go through this. Oh, okay, great. That sounds like fun. Yep. (laughs) Just trying to weave a picture here. I was along for the ride. Good, good. As you continue straight down the road, you think about how you will entertain yourself today. On the right are the large and small theaters, along with the Temple of Isis. Today, however, you know that a few festivals are taking place through the city, and in the large amphitheater to the southeast of the city, you know that there will be a few sacrifices. Uh-oh. Well, it's exciting for you. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, as a spectator, you're, you're not... The sacrifice. You're the spectator oh, okay. for all the right, sacrifice. All right. I, as long as I'm not the sacrifice, we're good. <laughs> yeah, today, this day, and I believe it was February 2nd of uh, the year 62, you know that there's a festival going on in this city that is honoring Augustus's being named the father of the nation. And there is also a 
citywide festival going on to honor the benevolent spirits that guard the city. Nice. Yeah. You walk down the cobblestone sidewalks as vehicles pass over the sewage-drained roads. Yuck. A a modern marvel at the time. And you eventually made it to the amphitheater to watch the sacrifices. Fun. That was the kind of yucky thing I glossed over. Uh, Mm. Old roads of that time had... They did have small sidewalks that were raised just above the road because the roads were used for sewage. Yep. And they had these cobblestones that helped you cross over the sewage roads and also had gaps in them so that your vehicles could get through the roads still. They were real gross back then. But, I mean, it was a modern modern marvel. That's true, and it wasn't... Because it was a sewer system. Yep. Whereas before there probably wasn't... Any sewage system. Right. I will say I prefer our underground sewage systems now, though. Underground is preferable to above ground. (laughs) On on your way to the big amphitheater, you feel a few tremors, and it's not enough to shake you off your path. After all, tremors are very normal in the Naples Gulf region or the Naples Bay region. However, as you're arriving, a big tremor does hit, and... It would have shaken you off the path if you didn't run to hide in the large, sturdy amphitheater. I'm pretty sure that was a mistake. It's a large, sturdy amphitheater. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Oil lanterns all around are being thrown from their hanging places, and the streets are lighting on fire. The buildings begin to crumble, and you run into the large amphitheater for cover, as it's one of the strongest buildings nearby. Eventually, the quake ceases, and you emerge from the amphitheater to see that the temples are near crumbled, The buildings are cracked and in pieces, and looters and riots fill the street. You run straight back to your boat, and you escape the city. Oh. For a time, you hear that the city has lost control, and that the government is near lawless and uh, non-existent. The rebuilding of the city is extremely slow, and for what was once a proud port town with a teeming economy and a river access was reduced to shambling and sorry state. Over the next ten years, you would hear stories of the city's rebirth, Buildings are being erected as the looters and ruffians begin to leave their pillaged, the city that they pillaged dry. The government is getting back into the swing of things, and the city seems to be well on its way to eventually becoming prosperous again. <laughs> you take a trip back to your old stomping ground 17 years later after the big one. The city, the city of the year 76 still has work to do, but the rumors were right, and it's growing again. You stop at your normal bathhouse, stroll past the almost rebuilt ruins of Venus and Apollo and Jupiter, and take a detour to some of the ruins with some large fresco paintings. The Villa of Mystery has a painting of a party where an angel is, has even joined. The Casa del Centen- Centenario has a painting of a display of, we'll say, physical love. <laughs> uh, this particular city was known for some of its erotic paintings. Uh-oh. <laughs> And in Casa Cassi di Amanti, there is a depiction of a great banquet, very reminiscing of your last trip here with the Feast of the Guardian Spirits. Nice. As you take in the rebuilding, tragedy strikes. You feel the similar rumbles of the earth, and the buildings around you are collapsing again. Eventually, something is different this time. As the sky has gone black, to the northwest you see a column of smoke in the shape of a pine tree rapidly growing, out of the tip of the great Mount Vesuvius. Uh-oh. Through the smoke, fire begins to fall as well, and ash rains from the sky. Chunks of volcanic tephra destroy nearby buildings. You stand in awe as the eruption fills the sky, and chaos fills the streets. One more loud crack, and a few seconds later, you are gone. 
Oh, no. From the banks of Mizanum, Pliny the Younger recorded the description of the dreadful scene as the destruction of Pompeii continued. Oops. He was waiting for the return of his uncle, Pliny the Elder, as he left on a ship to aid the rescue of the evacuations of the cities at the base of Mount Vesuvius. Unfortunately, Pliny the Elder never returned, lightly likely dying of asthmatic ash inhalation, stroke, or heart attack from the chaos he found. So as you've now sussed out, my topic is the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii. Yep. Was that what you were thinking it was? It was. When you said how early it was, I was a little suspicious. Yeah. Because, of course, I've been looking at all of the things that it could be, too. So, Mm -hmm. like, things connected in my brain. Yep. So just the description destruction of Pompeii isn't accurate, though, as the cities of Herculaneum, Aplontus, and Stabai were also largely, if not completely, decimated. The total estimated population of the region was around 20,000 people, though only 1,500 deaths have been confirmed with bodies. Mm. Bodies might also not be the most accurate term as what we found were burnt casts of people buried beneath the estimated 9.2 feet of ash. Yikes. And that was ash that fell over a very short time and then a little bit into a second day. There was about two days of eruptions from Mount Vesuvius. Yeah. And lots and lots of falling debris. Likely the reason these bodies were in the conditions that that archaeologists found them in was that the eruption spewed not just ash, lava, and tephra, which is just a term for anything that a mountain that a volcano can spew out in large chunks it's can be comprised of any sort of minerals but also just immense amounts of hot gas it's estimated that vesuvius erupted with a thermal energy 100,000 times that of the nuclear bombs dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki yikes yeah that is a lot of power yeah That's insane. Yeah, the heat from the gas was estimated to be 250 degrees Celsius or 482 degrees Fahrenheit. What a horrific way to go. Yeah, so that was was at, or estimated at Pompeii, which was about a six-mile radius away from the volcano. Boy, oh boy. So it could have been and would have been much hotter at the... The closer you were to the volcano. Ooh, I and don't like. that temperature is hot enough to instantly incinerate everything within that radius. Oh, gosh. So when I said that uh, there was another loud crack and then you were gone. Yep. That was the second eruption or, well, the archaeologists and historians believe actually the fifth or sixth eruption of mm-hmm. Vesuvius was the one that wiped everybody out with mm-hmm. what they call a Plinian eruption. Mm-hmm. Because Pliny recorded it. Oh, yeah. Yep. Pliny's all up in there. So, Plinian eruptions are large, violent eruptions that are very tall and are generally backed by um, gas mm. rather rather than magma flow. Or, well, in conjunction with. But the majority of their heat energy comes from the hot gas that the volcano spews. But the gas is what gets you. Yeah. So, the gas is what likely killed everyone in that Oof. area. Um I think I saw that it was estimated that less than 4% of the people died from ash-related deaths um, because you had to be pretty far away from it. Yeah. Even the um, the city that Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger were in before the eruption, um, Mizanum, mm-hmm. on the second day, Mizanum was seeing ashes from, from Vesuvius. And it was, it was quite a few miles away. Wow. Yeah. 
on the second day, there was also even a tsunami that Pliny reported coming to the banks of Mizanum. I think I remember hearing, like, ages ago in middle school when we, when we studied Mount Vesuvius, I remembered the tsunami part. Yeah. It was largely not destructive, though. It mm-hmm. was just they, they saw the tsunami because it was in a Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and luckily, it didn't do too much damage, at least not compared to <laughs> Vesuvius. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I think enough damage had already been done. <laughs> yep. The type of explosion or the, the flow of the hot gases are called pyroclastic flows. And other volcanoes have been recorded as moving up to 700 kilometers an hour or 430 miles per hour. That is speedy. Yep. So, again, when I mentioned you hear you hear a crash and then you're gone, yep. it was probably that fast. So all of those, like, movies and stuff about Pompeii that depict all these people, like, running for their lives are probably not super accurate then, huh? Well, they they did run for the first five explosions. Oh, right, right. Sorry, I thought... It was on the fifth or sixth explosion. the one that, like, wiped everybody out. That wiped everybody out in an instant. Okay. Caught up now. Yep. Um, And these pyrocrat pyroclastic uh, flows can also reach temperatures upward of 1,000 degrees Celsius or 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit. Ouch. So even though Vesuvius was enough to wipe people out in an instant, it was only a quarter of what it could have been. Yep. It was later determined that they possibly had warning that Vesuvius's eruption would happen. And archaeologists and historians would go on to explain that this is how Pliny the Elder was able to get a fleet to the disaster zone in order to evacuate people. What was reported is that there was likely um, 600 sheep that died that morning of oh. what people called tainted air. Oh. The tainted air likely being um, sulfurous gases escaping yeah. from the mountain. And there was another um, mention of small pillars of smoke coming out of cracks of the mountain. And a courier was sent to warn Pliny the Elder and get the Roman naval fleet. Because Pliny Pliny the Elder was in charge of the Roman naval fleet at that point. Okay. Um, At least the Roman naval fleet that was in Misenum. Mm -hmm. So he was actually able to, or we think from Pliny the Younger's records, that the courier was able to get to Pliny just before the initial blast of Vesuvius and just barely being able to tell them, hey, this is happening, that it happened. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, and they it's all had to go. happening. Yep. Um, mm. And by the way, all the stuff from Pliny the Younger was sent to a historian named Tiberius. All right. Yep. And it was about 25 years after Vesuvius exploded that all these letters were written. Nothing like a little uh, climactic delay, huh? Yeah. So Keep it all fresh in your mind 25 years later. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Well, most likely dates got screwed up because of yes. that. There was yeah. there was record of this not happening on August 14th, which is what I picked up um, the, this event from. It was estimated that maybe it actually occurred in October based on some writings that they found in the ruins. And mm-hmm. maybe it occurred even in November if they're going off of some early calendars that may have conflicting dates with our current calendar so but we're gonna go with august we are because i'm already almost done talking about it yeah and i feel like that's probably like the currently most accepted date for it so it's good for now it's good for now (laughs) so there is a good quote from Pliny the younger's description of the first eruption that was from the letters that he wrote to tiberius 
and that was um, broad sheets of flame were lighting up the many parts of Vesuvius. Their light and brightness were the more vivid for the darkness of the night. It was daylight now elsewhere in the world, but there was darkness that was darker and thicker than any night. Ooh, that sounds unpleasant. Yeah, so this may sound dramatized, but Vesuvius has erupted quite a few times since then. Mm -hmm. It erupted in uh, 172, 203, 303-379, 1,139, 1,150, 1,270, 1,347, 1,500. In 1631, about six times um, during the 18th century, about eight more times in the 19th century, and in 1906, 1929, and most recently in 1944. So basically it just doesn't stop erupting. Yeah. So there have been reports of eruptions from Vesuvius that even reach all the way to Istanbul, more than 1,200 kilometers, and seven, which is 750 miles away. Wow. Yep. So that is how far the clouds from Vesuvius have spread in the past. That's some trajectory. Yeah. So this is a big and angry volcano. Yeah, apparently. Yep. So Vesuvius is the only known European volcano to have erupted in the last 100 years. Its status as a national park is... <laughs> <laughs> yep. So it has status as a national park. It has about 3 million population around it. And this makes it the most inhabited and most dangerous volcanic region in the planet. Why do people stay... Okay, I realize that's a really dumb question because, like, we have people who live in, like, Tornado Alley and, like, yep. stuff, that kind of thing. But why do people stay there? <laughs> I mean, also, I mean, at least the tourists, you know what they go there for. They go to yeah. see the the cask bodies. Aww. Yep. And I mean, the part of the temples is still standing, like the Temple of Apollo is still oh, standing. And nice. I mean, I as, as much as you can count a few pillars and a foundation standing, but Aww. it's there. <laughs> and uh, from some of the records that, or from some of the records from archaeologists when they started excavating, uh, Pompeii, they can even tell that Pompeii wasn't even finished rebuilding from Jeez. the first earthquake that I was talking about in 62. So they were still trying to rebuild when this happened. Uh, kind of a brief history of Vesuvius in mythology is that it's thought to be the Flagrian Plains that vomited fire that Hercules had to travel through in his legend. That would sound about um, right, judging from how frequently it's erupted. Yeah, it was inhabited by giants and bandits, and Hercules would have to pacify the hostility of the region before moving on to the rest of his trials. Hmm. The origin of Vesuvius comes from the Greek words meaning unquenchable, hurling violence, shine, and hearth. Hmm. So an unquenchable, violent, shining hearth. As I say, the, hurl the hurling violence or whatever seems pretty applicable. Yes. Anyways, um, that's what I have to talk about Vesuvius. Great. Charred bodies. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> and now I can give my deep, gravelly voice a rest, and it's your turn, right? <laughs> yes, it is. All right, so I'm going back a ways, but then we're going to time hop forward. <laughs> oh, you know. We're going to do a little bit of a time warp. All right, so on August 22nd, 565, the Irish monk St. Columba was staying in the land of the Picts, 
a.k.a. Scotland, with his companions when he encountered local residents burying a man by the river Ness. They explained that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast that mauled him and then dragged him underwater. And although they tried to rescue him in a boat, he was dead. I so think, sad. I think I know what cryptid this is. <laughs> hmm, I wonder whatever gave it away. <laughs> so Columba sent a follower to swim across the river, and the beast approached him. But then Columba made the sign of the cross and said, Go no further, do not touch the man, go back at once. And the creature stopped as if it had been pulled back with ropes and fled. And then Columba's men and the Picts gave thanks for what they perceived as a miracle. And this is the first known sighting of the Loch Ness Monster as told by Adamnan. It's a Scottish name that I don't know how to pronounce. Christ, I thought it was Bigfoot. <laughs> um, so, okay, so it was first sighting of the Loch Ness Monster is told by Adamnan in um, his book, The Life of St. Columba. That was um, actually written about a century after the event had happened. So uh, kind of like with Pliny the Younger, there was a little bit of a Yeah, here you are lapse. making fun of my, my 25 <laughs> years, and you're like, well, I'm going to do a century. century. later. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we can't all be um, Pliny the Younger. So. so the next reported sighting isn't until the 20th century. So we're doing a nice big old jump there. Yep. <laughs> um, and the creature sightings became much more prevalent. It's been claimed that the sightings of the monster increased after a road was built along the lock in early 1933 that brought workers and tourists to the formerly isolated area. So one of the most well-known sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, or Nessie affectionately, was on July 22, 1933, when George Spicer and his wife saw a most extraordinary form of animal cross the road in front of their car. They described the creature as having a large body, about 4 feet high and 25 feet long, and a long, wavy, narrow neck that was slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk and as long as the 10 to 12 foot road, like width wise. I don't think I ever realized that a Nessie sighting happened outside of the water. Yeah, no, they, they claim to have seen it crossing the road. Go figure. So they reported that it had no limbs and it lurched across the road towards the lock 20 yards away, leaving a trail of broken undergrowth in its wake. That's horrifying. Yes, it is. I can only imagine the, like, sheer and utter panic that would have set in seeing a 25-foot-long creature just, like, crawling across the road in front of you. How did we start thinking it was a plesiosaur and not just some weird snake or worm? I don't know, but this is, the, I think this, as far as I can tell, this is the only one that claims to that, like, it didn't have any limbs. So I wonder if by, like, no limbs it meant, like, no, like... Full appendages? Maybe. Or maybe it's just like they didn't see it because of the time or something like that. Um, um, okay, so so there is a pho photograph that we are all probably very familiar with, which is the surgeon's photograph, which is the first to allegedly depict the creature's head and neck. It was supposedly taken by Roger Kenneth Wilson, a London gynecologist, hence surgeon's photo. Uh -huh. Um and it was published in the Daily Mail on April 21st in 1934. He refused to have his name associated with it, and that led to it being known as the surgeon's photograph because that's all the information they had. They didn't have a name. They just knew, like, occupation, essentially. Um, according to Wilson, he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two of the exposures came out clearly. The first reportedly shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position, the first photo became very well known as what we think of as the surgeon's photo. And the second one attracted little publicity because it was 
pretty blurry. Um, and the other two, like, didn't come out at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for 60 years, the photo was considered evidence of the monster's existence, although skeptics dismissed it as driftwood, an elephant, an otter, or a bird. Pretty uh, wide range of creatures. The bird one gets me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here, my my assumption would be, like, a bird on the water, sitting on the water. Because, like, you know what picture I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, 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 oh, I mean, it could have been, It honestly kind of looks like a log sticking out of the water. Because <laughs> it was a log sticking out of the water. Hey, now. Um... Okay, so this is where we get into a lot of the skepticism and the counters to the idea of the Loch Ness Monster's existence. The photo scale was controversial, and it was often shown as cropped, which made the creature seem larger and um, the ripples around it looked like waves. While the uncropped photos show um, the end of the lock, like the other end of the lock, like the far end of the lock, and the monsters in the center. And the ripples in the photo were found to fit the size and pattern of small ripples, um, unlike the unlike large waves when photographed up close. Yeah. Um, analysis of the original image fostered further doubt, and in 1993, the makers of the Discovery Communications documentary Loch Ness Discovered analyzed the uncropped image and found a white object visible in every version of the photo that implied that it was on the negative. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Um, and it was believed to be the cause of the ripples, as if the ob- object was being towed. Although the possibility of a blemish on the negative couldn't be ruled out either. And an analysis of the full photograph indicated that the object was small, about two to three feet long. Okay. So nowhere near the size of the claimed Loch Ness Monster by the Spicers. Since 1994, most people agree that the photo was an elaborate hoax. The creature was reported reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian, um, someone named Christian Sperling, who is the son-in-law of Marmaduke Wetherell who had been publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail, after he found Nessie footprints, which turned out to be fakes. And if I recall correctly, they were actually, like, hippopotamus footprints that someone had, like, actually gone out and, like, stamped. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, whoopsies. <laughs> um, so to get revenge on the mail, he perpetrated his hoax with co-conspirator Sperling, who is a sculpture specialist, Ian Wetherell, his son, who bought the material for the fake, and someone named Maurice Chambers, who was an insurance agent. The toy submarine was bought, um, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Wetherell took the photos near the Altsig Tea House. And when they heard someone approaching, Wetherell sank the boat with his foot. And it's presumably still somewhere in Loch Ness, just sitting at the bottom somewhere. So Chambers then gave the photographic plates to Wilson, um, the Wilson originally, the yep. gynecologist dude, um, and ooh, a friend of his, so he was a friend of Chambers, who enjoyed a good practical joke. Yep. Um, Wilson brought the plates to Augustin's, an Inverness chemist, and gave them, who then gave them to someone for development, and he sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, who then announced that the monster had been photographed. So another um, interesting sighting is on... May 29th of 1938, a South African tourist filmed something in the lock for three minutes on 16-millimeter color film. The film was then obtained by Maurice Burton, who is a British zoologist and popular science author and who is pretty much most well-known for his, um, like, deep trying, like, constant trying to debunk the Loch Ness Monster myth. Um, so, <laughs> very well-known skeptic yep. got these this, this film and then never showed it to any other researchers. 
Suspicious. That is suspicious. Mm. I'm waggling my eyebrows suspiciously. Um, So a single frame was published in his 1961 book, The Elusive Monster, and his his analysis concluded that it was a floating object, not an animal. And so the real question is, what happened to the film, and has anyone seen it since? Mm. Unknown. Because a single frame in the book, published in a book of a known skeptic, doesn't seem like conclusive proof that it's fake. Yeah. But without the rest of the film, there's really no way to know. Who knows? Tricky, tricky. Um, So in December 1954, sonar readings were taken by the fishing boat, boat, the Rival 3. Its crew noted a large object keeping pace with the vessel at a depth of 146 meters, and it was detected for 800 meters before contact was lost and then regained. And previous sonar attempts had been inconclusive or just hadn't shown anything. But, like, something was following them. Yeah. Unknown what it was, but something. It was nasty. It was definitely nasty. (laughs) Um, So the aeronautical engineer, Tim Dinsdale, yeah, that's right, filmed a hump which left a wake crossing Loch Ness in 1960. He reportedly had the sightings on his final day of a search and described it as reddish with a blotch on its side. He said that when he mounted his camera, the object began to move, and he he shot 40 feet of film. I'm curious as to if it means actually physically 40 feet of of film film, or if you, like, tracked it for 40 feet. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. I was convinced it was 40 feet of real. I mean, that seems logical. Sure. Um, So according to JARC, which is now the Defense Intelligence Fusion Center, the object was probably animate. Others were skeptical, saying that the hump couldn't be ruled out as being a boat, when the co- and when the contrast is increased, they claim a man in a boat can be seen. However, in 1993, Discovery Communications produced a documentary, Loch Ness Discovered, I think we mentioned it earlier, Yep. Um, with a digital enhancement of the Dinsdale film. A person who enhanced the film noticed a shadow in the negative which was not obvious in the developed film. And by enhancing and overlaying frames, he found what appeared to be the rear body of a creature underwater. And he said, before I saw the film, I thought the Loch Ness Monster was a load of rubbish. Having done the enhancement, I'm not so sure. Mm, Yep. So one person's convinced. Good job. So there's a very interesting account um, uh, from someone named Anthony Doc Shields, who is a magician and a psychic who claims to have seen the creature on May 21st of 1977 while he was camping next to the Urquhart, Ur- 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 whatever, castle. <laughs> he, um, he claims to have summoned the creature out of the water and taken some of the clearest pictures to this day. Ooh. He summoned it with magic and psychic ability. And if they're so clear, do we have them? Nope. <laughs> oh, weird. Weird how that happens. Yeah. Um, so he later described it as an elephant squid, claiming the long That's neck. That's gross. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> um, he cla- <laughs> Nessie is, is gorgeous. There's no way it's an elephant squid. He's probably my favorite just because he's clearly a nut. Um, so he claimed that the long neck shown in the photograph is actually the squid's trunk. And that a white spot on the base of its neck is its eye. Due to the lack of ripples, it has been declared a hoax by a number of people and received its name because of its staged look. Good job, guys. Um, (laughs) If you're going to do it, make it a little more believable. So on August 3rd, 2012, skipper George Edwards claimed that a photo he took on November 2nd of 2011 showed Nessie. And he claimed to have searched for the monster for 26 years. 
and reportedly spent 60 hours a week on the lock aboard his boat, the Nessie Hunter 4. Presumably Nessie Hunters 1 through 4 or were one through three sank, were sunk by Nessie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's my assumption. Yep. Um, and he took tourists for rides on the lake. He said, in my opinion, it probably looks kind of like a manatee, but not a mammal. When people see three humps, they're probably just seeing three separate monsters. So he thought there were more than one Nessie lurking up in here. And it's just a manatee, <laughs> not a mammal. No, yes. <laughs> Okay. Good job, buddy. Um, other researchers have questioned the photograph's authenticity, and Lo- the Loch Ness researcher George. Uh, ooh, wow, not even close. Steve Feltham, <laughs> George, Steve. <laughs> Clearly, I can't read anymore. It's fine. <laughs> um, I'm supposed to be the sick one today. I'm tired. Um, okay, so the Loch Ness mo- nah, geez. Loch Ness researcher Steve Feltham suggested that the object in the water is a fiberglass hump used in a National Geographic Channel documentary in which Edwards had participated. Oh. Womp womp. So the, and the researcher Dick Rayner has questioned Edwards' claims of discovering a deeper bottom of Loch Ness, which he calls the Edwards Deep. And he okay. found, <laughs> clearly mockingly, he found inconsistencies between Edwards' claim for the location and conditions of the photograph and the actual location and weather conditions that day. And according to Rayner, Edward told him he had taken, he had faked a photograph in 1986, which he claimed was genuine in the Nat Ge- uh, National Geographic documentary. Although Edward admits in 2013 that his 2011 fo- photograph was a hoax, he swears that the 1968 photograph was real. It's got to be. It has to be. Because you faked one, why wouldn't you fake another one? So in 2013, on August 27th, the tourist David Elder presented a five-minute video of a mysterious wave in the lock. And according to him, the wave was was produced by a 15-foot solid black object just under the surface of the water. Um, Elder was taking a picture of a swan at the Fort Augustus Pier on the southwestern end of the lock when he captured the movement. And he said the water was very still at the time and there were no ripples coming off the wave and no other activity on the water. And skeptics suggest that the wave may have been caused by a wind gust. And, like, personally, my I would think that the difference between a ripple from wind and a ripple caused by, like, a um, 50-foot creature under the water are probably pretty different visually. Yeah. But I wasn't there, and I'm not a water expert, so I guess I really can't say... <laughs> As much uh, as you'd like to be a water better, you're yes. not. Yes, uh, my my heart yearns. All right, so there, the Loch Ness phenomenon phenomena investigation bureau was a UK based society formed in 1862 by someone um, Norman Collins, R S R Fitter, the politician David James, Peter Scott, and Constance White to study Loch Ness to identify the creature known as the Loch Ness monster or determine the cause of reports of it. The group was disbanded in 1972, but its main activity was encouraging groups of self-funded volunteers to watch the lock from vantage points with film cameras with telescopic lenses. So to get those darn good pictures. What year was this? Um, well, between 1962 and 1972. Oh, okay. Yeah. From 1965 to 1972, it had a caravan camp and viewing platform um, at Akhenaten, 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 oh jeez. Aknahanet. Close enough. And sent um and they sent observers to other locations up and down the lock to try and, you know, get better pictures and stuff. So then we have Robert Rhines, who was an American lawyer, inventor, musician, and composer. 
Cool. Very multi-talented. And About apparently the Loch Ness Finder, correct? <laughs> well, apparently also scientist, so there's another one. Um, and he led searches for the Loch Ness Monster. In 1972, him and a group of researchers from the Academy of Applied Science conducted a search for the monster involving sonar examination of the Loch depths for unusual activity. A submersible camera with a floodlight was deployed to record images below the surface. And if Ryan's detected anything on the sonar, he turned the light on and took pictures. On August 8th, they identified a moving target, or multiple targets, estimated by echo strength at 6 to 9 meters, so 20 to 30 feet in length, so yep. long. And experts from several groups, including Raytheon, Simrad, Hydroacoustics, and MIT, were on hand to examine the data, and it was suggested that the data indicated a 10-foot or 3-meter protuberance projecting from one of the echoes. So, like... A fin or a tail. Mm-hmm. According to the author um, Roy Mackle, the shape was a highly flexible, laterally, laterally flattened tail, or the misinterpreted return of two animals swimming together. Uh-huh. One or the other. <laughs> Could be a big tail. Could be some animals. <laughs> um, so concurrent with the sonar readings, the floodlit camera obtained a pair of underwater photographs, and both depicted what appeared to be a rhomboid flipper, Although skeptics have dismissed the image as the bottom of the lock, air bubbles, a rock, or a fish fin. That's a lot of things that are not even close to a flipper. Yep, I agree. The apparent flipper was photographed in different positions, indicating movement. Rocks don't move, just saying. The first flipper photo is better known than the second, and both were enhanced and retouched from the original negatives. According to team member Charles Wyckoff, the photos were retouched to superimpose the flipper. So he's claiming that they were fake. Whoa, whoa. The original enhancement showed a considerably less distinct object. No one, however, is sure how the originals were altered. Mystery. So another sonar contact was made by um, Rhines and his team, this time with two objects estimated to be about 9 meters or 30 feet. The strobe camera photographed two large, white, lumpy objects surrounded by a flurry of bubbles, and some interpreted the objects as two plesiosaur-like animals, suggesting several large animals living in Loch Ness. This photo has rarely been published, Uh, and I couldn't find it, so mm. who knows. So in 2001, Ryan's Academy of Applied Science videotaped a V-shaped wake traversing still water on a calm day. The Academy also videotaped an object on the floor of the loch resembling a carcass and found marine clamshells and a fungus-like organism that were not normally found in freshwater lochs, which suggested a connection to the sea and a possible point of entry and exit for the creature. So maybe it doesn't live there year-round. Yeah. It could come in and out, which would explain why people see it and they don't. And, like, when they just, do the sonar and all that stuff, they're not finding it. It just free willies over that eddy yeah. that <laughs> separates the lock from the ocean. Well, I'm thinking it would probably be more of, like, an underground tunnel sort of thing, but yes. I see you're wearing your tinfoil hat. I am wearing my tinfoil hat. It is firmly affixed atop my head. (laughs) Underground tunnels are how Nessie navigates away from us. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so in 2008, Ryan's theorized that the creature may have become extinct, um, citing the lack of significant sonar readings and a decline in eyewitness accounts. He undertook a final expedition using sonar and an underwater camera in an attempt to find a carcass. He believes that the animals may have failed to adapt to temperature changes resulting from global warming. Son of a gun. Global warming killed Nessie. I'm mad. (laughs) So am I, clearly. 
Um, okay, so in 2003, we're going to backtrack a smidge. The BBC sponsored a search of the lock using 600 sonar beams and satellite tracking. The search had sufficient resolution to identify a small buoy, like in the water, but no animal of substantial size was found, and despite their reported hopes, the scientists involved admitted that this proved the Loch Ness Monster was a myth. And the uh, su- the subsequent documentary, Searching for the Loch Ness Monster, aired on BBC One. That's probably not really relevant information, now that I think about it. I was tired when I did these notes. It's okay. <laughs> and last but not least, an international team consisting of researchers from the universities of um, Otago, Copenhagen Hall, and the Highlands and Islands, <laughs> Highlands and Islands, did a DNA survey of the lake in June 2018, looking for unusual species. The results are expected sometime in 2019. Oh. We're running out of time, folks. It's August. Did you look to see if they were published yet? I couldn't find them, but that doesn't mean anything. It could be, like, in publication or something like that. Mm. I'm just saying, we're halfway through 2019. Get a move on. So there have been many suggestions as to what could be mistaken for the Loch Ness Monster, including wakes from birds, a large eel, a picture of an elephant taken elsewhere, and then soup, like, claimed to be taken from Loch Ness, but not actually taken out of Loch Ness, a Greenland shark, a Wells catfish, otters, trees, Optical effects, including wind ripples and atmospheric refraction. And my favorite, seismic gas. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So as you can probably tell, several of these sightings have proven to be hoaxes. There have been many more, but one of the most interesting is from 1972, when a team of zoologists from Yorkshire's Flamingo Park Zoo, searching for the monster, discovered a large body floating in the water. The corpse, 16 to 18 feet long and weighing as much as one and a half tons, was described by the Press Association as having a bear's head and a brown scaly body with claw-like fins. The creature was placed in a van to be carried away for testing, but police seized the cadaver under an act of parliament prohibiting the removal of unidentified creatures from Loch Ness. It was later revealed that Flamingo Park educator officer John Shields had shaved the whiskers and otherwise disfigured a bull elephant seal which had died the week before and dumped it in Loch Ness to dupe his colleagues. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah, I know. Um, and then in 2004, a fire TV documentary team using cinematic special effects experts tried to convince people that there was something in the lock, and they constructed an animatronic model of a plesiosaur calling it Lucy. And despite setbacks, including Lucy falling to the bottom of the lock, about 600 sightings were reported where she was placed. Uh. So they succeeded. <laughs> But it wasn't Nessie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's also an official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register, which keeps a record of every possible glimpse of Nessie, and there have now been a thousand reported sightings. Of course. So I only listed some of them, but there have yep. been a thousand reported sightings. Um, for now, the existence of a creature in Loch Ness remains a fascinating mystery. It absolutely does. I'm convinced it's real. I just remembered that there was a, like, old non-Disney cartoon movie that was called Nessie or something like that. The Water Horse? I don't know. Because there is like a... They just like remade it too, actually, I think. It's like The Water Horse. And it's essentially like a child finds a water monster and like tries to free it from the people trying to hunt it down or whatever. Maybe I'm imagining this movie because I don't see it. (laughs) Well, it was also mentioned in... um, my one of my favorite children's shows, Phineas and Ferb. Oh yeah, but it's not the Loch Ness monster. 
It's like the tri-state monster, and it's called Nosy, clearly imp- in- implying that it is Nessie-esque. And it is, it looks like a plesiosaur, and Phineas and Ferb go fishing with their dad, and their dad, like, falls asleep, and so they build, essentially, a, like, tunnel down and, like, a submarine. Maybe they bring the submarine with them. I don't know. They're children who make things like submarines. I was a little concerning. And uh, they take said submarine and go trolling for Nosy, the nose-like monster. That's it. Nose-like monster. There you go. There it is. I knew I'd remember it eventually if I just kept talking. And um, eventually they find it and make friends with it, and it gets mad anytime you take its picture. And that's why there are no pictures of the nose-like monster. And then it cried because someone took his picture, so they went and sa- they went and destroyed whatever took his picture, essentially thwarting Doofenshmirtz on accident. I found what I was thinking of. Oh, good. I knew if I talked long enough, you might. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember that. It was called Happiness. Ah, uh, that looks familiar. I don't think I ever saw it, but I've definitely like seen of it. Happiness, the secret of the lock. Follow your heart to unlock the secret. Yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> Oh, man. Now, is it Disney or is it Disney adjacent? It was Fox Kids. Oh, okay. So now it's Disney. Oh, Because Fox right. owns Disney. So now Disney has a Loch Ness Monster movie. Yeah, all the all of the Nessies were named Happiness, Kindness, <laughs> Loveliness, yes. Silliness, Coolness. Yeah, it just keeps going for a long time. Oh, my goodness. There were some bad Selfishness. There were pompousness. And greediness. I like sneakiness. Deviousness. Darkness. Meanness. Oh. And then all the people were no- named McJoy <laughs> or Sir Angus Prize. Can I be Angus Prize? Because I think I prefer that name to McJoy. Just saying. Sure. Go for it. I feel like a prize sometimes. You are a prize <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you have to say that. <laughs> This only lasted 13 episodes. Ouch. Originated in the United Kingdom, also airing in Sweden and other countries on Fox Kids. I don't know how I saw it. Huh. But I super remember this. Well, it looks familiar to me, too. I don't think I ever watched it, but, like, the the look of it looks familiar. Yeah. And that was our quick up, quick uh, Wikipedia look up facts corner. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, good if job. If we were on another show, we would call it Jonathan Googles It. Yes, we would. Plug time. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find us on Patreon at Halfwit Pod. You can send us emails, which we would love to receive. Yes, please. At halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yep. And you can probably Google us too. Halfwit-history.com. Yes. That I one. recently renamed it and did some back-end stuff to make it so that when you type that in, it no longer redirects to buzzsprout.com <laughs> forward slash 308030 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it was like 3308 something, something, something. Yeah. yeah. So now it'll, now it'll show up as Halfwit History in Woo-hoo! the URL also. Very exciting. Yay. Yeah. Oh, and we have, I know we mentioned it last episode, but we have um, donation tiers now up on Patreon. Very exciting stuff. Um, yeah. The the most, I probably the easiest tier are Bilbo's Buddies. And uh, you get a wonderful picture of our extremely photogenic dog, Bilbo. He, he is cute. That one's not a that one's not a sarcastic remark. No, he's he's darn cute. He doesn't always take the best pictures. 
I I will make sure that someone gets some ugly pictures of him just for fun. You might get a bonus. You might get a good one and a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> just for fun. Um, and then we have the um, stone. We got Stone Age halfwits yes, and Stone one. Age historians. We're... I almost said dunces, and I'm like, that's not yep. it. <laughs> Starting with the Stone Age, we're leaving room for higher tiers later. Yeah. Um, but basically, if you join the Halfwits, you'll get a monthly update from me with things that I've watched recently or things that I want you to watch, like animes or uh, <laughs> other TV shows or manga or books or uh-huh. D&D-related stuff. And if you do the historian's side donations, you'll get all those types of updates from Kylie. Yeah, like books I've been reading, music, um, movies, all that good kind of stuff. Likely Broadway as well. Oh, heck yes, you will. You will get lots of Broadway recommendations. Mostly me just like raving about whatever I happened to see recently. Yeah. Or trying to con everyone into getting Broadway HD. Um, and I uh, want to say an extra special thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. We forgot to call it out last week. It was very late. We apologize. Yeah, we were very tired. I will admit to that. Yep. Okay, you ready for fun facts? I am. On August 21st of 1976, Operation Paul Bunyan begins in retaliation of the Korean axe murder incident three days prior. Hmm... 110 troops, 27 helicopters, and three B-52 bombers were deployed to the Korean demilitarized zone in an effort to cut down a poplar. Wait, a singular poplar? A singular poplar tree blocking the view of UN observers of the other side of the demilitarized zone. Oh my goodness. Yep. Wow. That is a lot of firepower for a small tree. That's a little level of petty that I aspire to. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, my neighbor, my neighbor back home, my parents' house, is that level of petty. She keeps threatening to plant trees along our driveway so she doesn't have to see my dad's lobster traps. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, she doesn't own that land, so she can't do it. Yep. Jesus. <laughs> Anyways, know, yeah. what's your fun fact? All right. My fun fact is August 23rd, 1960, the world's largest frog is caught in the Equatorial Guinea. It was 7.27 pounds. Oh, wow. That's a big old frog. That's our Georgie. Yeah, that's that frog weighed the same amount as our rabbit. Wow. It's a chunky chunky bunny, but also a chunky froggy. Yeah, wow. I want that frog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyways, that's going to be our show. As always, I'm your halfwit. And I'm your historian. We hope you enjoyed listening. Bye. Oh,